We hope that this message will help guide you toward positive, Christ-centered change. By reviewing this podcast, you could be part of spreading the good news. Please also consider giving a donation to our ministry at cometoabc.com slash giving. As always, these messages are available to copy and share on social networks. Begin with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us, corrects us, inspires us, encourages us, and grows us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So how many of you have heard the statement that there are a lot of hypocrites in church? Have you heard that one? Yeah. Uh, we used to show a sign in here all the time saying the church is not full of hypocrites. There's still room for more. <laughs> what about all the hypocrites in church? This is a question we're going to answer. We're going over some more popular questions throughout the world, actually. A lot of people have questions about Christianity. And when you go to invite somebody to church, they may say, I don't want to come because they're judgmental and they're hypocritical and they're just going to be mean and nasty and they think they're better than me and better than everyone else. And what they're really getting at is what about all the hypocrites in churches? So not just our church, but in churches in general. So they're, they're trying to deal with that issue. And there's been a lot of things, especially those of you who are a little bit even older than me, remember the Jimmy Swaggerts and the Bakers and all of the problems that went on church. Did you know that church dramatically declined in attendance through those years? Because there was a falling out and, and an understanding that, wow, the church isn't what it claims to be. The church isn't what it claims to be. And there are a lot of hypocrites in church. Well, what does hypocrite mean? When we go back to the original word, it means play actor. It means that when we come in, and I have been guilty of this, and maybe you've been guilty of this too, where we come in and people say, how are you doing? And we say, great. You know, we do it with a little less enthusiasm, a little less creepy than that. But basically what we're doing is saying, we're great. We're doing good. When, when in reality, we're not doing well. Have you ever done that before? You put on your, your Jesus loves me face and, and you go out into the world. And, and that, that isn't really what they're talking about there. But I think there is some truth to that. And it's hard to have relationship in church because we're opening up ourselves and we're becoming vulnerable with other people. And if we really tell them how our day is, maybe they didn't really want to know to begin with. So I don't think Jesus asks us to lie about who we are, to be different than what we are but he wants us to become more and more like the image of his son and that includes fellowshipping worshiping together but i think it includes vulnerability with each other and that means when we're not doing so well and somebody's really asking us how we're doing we say not great and some of you are really good at that and others of us need to learn how to do that a little bit better it doesn't mean we dump on people all the time or we answer questions that they're not really asking but it means we're open and we're honest with each other. So this is a big detriment to the church, I think. And a lot of people say, well, I don't want to go to that because they're hypocritical, you know, and uh, really, I don't even care for organized religion, which is really confusing to me because what do they want? Disorganized religion? Because God is a God of order. And I think what they're saying is they don't want religion and judgment. And, and that's true. In fact, Jesus says, I haven't really come to bring religion, but I've come to bring my relationship with you. 
And the old law said, here's what you must do to abide within the kingdom of heaven. Here's what you must do to be right in the eyes of God. And Jesus comes and says, I haven't come to get rid of that law, but instead I've come to fulfill it. I've made it possible for you to complete it. And that's grace that he gives us. So while we continue in sin and while we're broken and while we mess up sometimes, we have a Savior that hasn't. And we have a Savior and Lord that imputes his grace, gives us his righteousness, meaning that he has already paid the price and allows us to be perfect in the eyes of God the Father. How many of you are thankful for that today? So what about the hypocrites in church? There's a story of a deacon who dressed to the nines and wore the tie and a suit and everything, and he was in there teaching the Sunday school class. And he was talking about the importance of living a Christian life. And, and he asked the boys in his group, he said, why do people call me a Christian? And one brave little boy raised his hand up really high. And he said, because they don't know you yet. <laughs> That's a tough kid, right? <laughs> but, but guys, th this is sometimes where, where we miss it. And, and we can say things like, well, my church really isn't like that. Or, or I found all the benefits of church being this way. But maybe we should go to the real root of the issue. And the real root of the issue is we are all hypocritical at different points we all have a standard and a goal in our mind and a vision of what we want to be but there are times where we miss the mark how many of you have done that before where where you've messed up where where you did something you're like wow I, I thought I was done with that or I can't imagine that I did that I can't believe I reacted this way and, and that's what hypocritical means but if you look at the world around us everybody at some given point is hypocritical, right? Everybody is doing something that is contrary to their nature or is against their nature. And it's difficult for, for people in the world to look at it because they say, well, as Christians, you claim to be this, but then I sometimes see this. And that's why it's so important to, to perfect our witness, to make sure that we're doing right in the eyes of other people and to do right by God. But we know we're going to fail eventually. But realize this, the church does not rise and fall on me. The church does not rise and fall on you. The church's focus is not on being perfect, but on the one who already is perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. So, while everybody else in the world is hypocritical, our leader is not. Amen? So Jesus Christ was true to who he was, completely through his life, lived without sin, did not fall, did not falter, did not get confused, was not hypocritical. But his followers stumble and fall. But we still claim him as leader. So when we mess up, we, or, or when we're saying something about the church, we have to say, well, yeah, it's hypocritical in some ways. There are problems in every church, and there's no church that's perfect. And eventually, if you live close enough to each other, and if you love each other, there are going to be some things that are rough and tough and not fun to deal with. But Christianity is not about the church's reaction or not about how the church lives, but it's how Jesus lived for us. So we claim Jesus as our leader first and foremost. And that's why it's not really a religion. It's a mentorship that he has called us to. Through his Holy Spirit, Jesus has said, become more like me. And that is a process. 
How many of you are perfect right now? I mean, yeah, honestly, we can't, we can't raise our hands, you know, except for, well, maybe we're being perfect in this moment right now. But we know that we have faults and we have failures and we have sins. And, and this is grace that God has given us. So we know that no matter where we go at work, you know, at the grocery store, a- everywhere we go, there are hypocrites. But it's interesting. People say, I won't go to church because they're hypocrites. Well, everywhere else you go, there's hypocrites too. Amen. You're going to be dealing with those everywhere. You don't get to avoid those. In fact, in church, we are supposed to deal with the hypocritical issue of our own hearts and our own desires. In fact, Paul said it in a way that I often think about. In Romans 7.15, we're going to start a little bit before the verse that you're probably used to. But it says this, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Have you ever done that? Like, I cannot believe that. I did it again, and I said I wasn't going to do it. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. And I want to do what is right, but I can't. And I want to do what is good, but I don't. And I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do... What I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. That is a lot of doo-doos, isn't it? Man, after reading that real quick, I get lightheaded. But that's how we live our life, right? When when we go out there, you know, we we, we say, you know, Lord, help me through this day. And before our feet hit the ground, you know, before we can have the first cup of coffee, which I think is a great, great thing that helps you along the way, at least me. I like my coffee. Um, we mess up. We say something. We think something. We do something that we wish we hadn't done. So when we look at this verse, if we just read that by itself and didn't know anything about Paul, we would think, wow, Paul, you're a real loser. You know, the Apostle Paul did not have it together. Like, what is he doing? He's always doing what he doesn't want to do, and he can't do anything right, and all this is going on. He has a real defeatism attitude. You you think that he's sitting there and critically thinking of himself, wow, I am just such a mess up, I can't do anything right. That's not what's going on here. What he's doing is saying that if there's anything good in me, it's because of Christ. If there's anything good in me, it's because of Jesus and what he's done for me. And here's what I'm constantly doing. I'm constantly trying to get rid of that hypocrite that's in my heart. I'm constantly trying through the power of Jesus to to say, stop it. And I know I'm not perfect. And I know I can't judge other people because I'm not perfect. But here's what I do know. I have a Savior who is. And so if that is where we are, then we have an understanding that breaks through that hypocrisy. Because the first thing we say is I'm flawed. And as a Christian, it means I should have a better understanding of my mess-ups than anybody else in the world. See, here's where we get it wrong in the church sometimes. In the church sometimes, we look at people and we think of people and we think, if they just got these areas in their life fixed, if they were just morally better, if they lived more according to the Bible morally, and they obeyed the moral code, then they would be better. And that's not true. Here's what is true, though. Jesus pays for our mess-ups. And because he pays for our mess-ups, he pulls us out of it. So instead of trying to fix people, 
that can't be fixed, we need to bring them to a Savior who can heal them and make them whole. All right? So when we look at the world, sometimes we're in this, we think we're in this cultural battle. We think we're in this fight against everything that's going on. We're not called to judge. We're called to heal. And healing only occurs through the Holy Spirit's power and through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we're to bring people to Jesus and introduce them to Jesus, not to introduce them to rules. Not to introduce them to here's how you live your life. That stuff happens because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That stuff happens as they grow in Jesus. He does that for them. We're simply agents of his truth. So, this is really kind of, it sounds easy, but it's more difficult to live out. It's harder because the truth is, when we're in church, we're going to rub up against people, we're going to disagree with people, we're going to have different personalities. And, and, And what we have to remember is that Christ is over us and that the Holy Spirit is residing in us. And that we're called to faith in each other. I think we might be a little bit surprised when we get to heaven, who's our neighbor? You know, you ever think about that? You know, how many of you have had fights in your mind or in reality? And I don't mean fist fights, but maybe you've had that too. But, but you've had disagreements with other believers in Jesus. Okay? What if they're your next door neighbor? Are you just going to raise your hand when you get in the gates and say, hey, Jesus, um, got any more real estate? <laughs> I, I can't stand this person. In fact, I'm kind of surprised they're in heaven. You can't do that, right? Uh, I think when we get there, it's not going to matter. But, but here's what we're called to right now. We're called to live together now. We're called to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And Mark Johnson, he always calls me brother. And uh, it makes me feel a little bit older. <laughs> But he's a good guy, right? He's a good guy. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what? Even beyond that, we're fathers and mothers in Christ. Some of you that are older are are my mother in Christ. Some of you that are older are my father in Christ. And we should have this communication level like a family. How many of you are in a family where you realize you can't pick who's in your family and you can't get rid of them? You're stuck with them, right? For good and bad, and sometimes it's really good, and sometimes it's eh. But here's the thing. Like, you go through all that stuff together, and that's what we're called to do as the church and as the bride of Christ. We're called to do this together. So are there hypocrites? Yes. Should we have more hypocrites in the church? Yes. (laughs) Because this is the only place we can get better. This is the hospital of Jesus Christ. This is where our souls get better. This is where we're made well and whole. And this is where God challenges you and grows you through those other difficult people. And I guarantee you're probably one of the difficult people for someone else. All right? That's one of the ministries I have. I'm difficult for a lot of people. (laughs) So, the, the Bible doesn't claim that we're perfect or that believers instantly become perfected or anything like that. We're not in nirvana, guys, here. We're, we're not hitting this plane of, of existential perfectness. We're not, we're not there. What instead is happening is we're being refined and we're going through the fire. And every day we live, Jesus is trying to grow us towards our eternity. And the closer we're there, the better off we are for other people. You realize that God is refining you for others so that you can minister to others, so that you can be what God created you to be. C.S. Lewis 
talked about his frustration with people and he had people that came up and said you know how do you deal with brother or sister so and so and i can't believe that they're a christian and they did this 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 and this and he said whoa hold on he said whoa hold on imagine if they weren't a christian i believe they'd be worse (laughs) okay so realize that jesus takes us all from whatever level we were developed and grown in and personality and everything else and he pushes us slowly into growth and so what we're looking for is not perfection in us instead what we're looking for is growth markers we need to look back on a year ago five years ago six years however long it is decades ago and say i know that jesus has brought me so far from that point and i'm such a different person in jesus and that is the power of the gospel that he perfects us and who knows us better than our creator amen So you can't know yourself apart from Jesus. I really believe that. You cannot know yourself apart from Jesus. So that that reminds us that that we're not called to judge and that when we go through Scripture and even some of the questions we answered before, when we go through these, realize that these first and foremost directly hit us first. Amen? Uh, I I had a minister I served under, and, and he would always say this. He'd say, I'm not talking about the person next to you, and I'm not talking about the person you're thinking about. I'm talking about you, okay? First, we have to take the plank of our own eyes, right? We have to get ourselves straight with God, and then he calls us into the ministry that he has for us. And this is important because we're jumping into a tough question that a lot of people don't want to talk about at all. So maybe we'll just skip it. (laughs) Someone said no, so I guess I'll go. Okay, question. What does the Bible say about sex before marriage? Uh Uh-oh. Okay. So I'm going to address this as cleanly and as as well as I can. I want you to realize I'm not judging anybody. I'm not condemning anybody. And I know a lot of us have a history and a past. and, And that does not define our future. Amen? And that once we ask for forgiveness and accept forgiveness, we are forgiven. Amen? But we're also called to a a standard once we're educated in the bible it says that too much who has been given much will be required and i think part of that is the knowledge and the grace and understanding of jesus and what he wants us to do so when we're talking about this i'm not talking about your neighbor that you know about i'm not talking about anybody else i am just saying what scripture says about this and i think it's deeply important that we talk about this from the pulpit because there's a whole generation that is growing up without this understanding at all I was in youth group and somebody asked a question there was basically this question and and i said yeah that's not permitted in scripture they don't want you to do that in scripture and he goes what now now it sounds funny to some of you that are older but a lot of us have never heard that we shouldn't live together before we're married like they've never heard that that's that's a biblical idea or concept and i know a lot of people do live together before they're married i'm not bashing you and i'm not trashing you i'm not trying to drag you through the mud or anything and i'm not trying to make you feel guilty I'm just trying to say, here's what Scripture says. So, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Let's look up that verse here. This is Paul speaking, and he's the Apostle Paul who was talking about the do-dos and don't-dos and all the other stuff earlier. He says, but because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. So this is a recipe for remaining pure, meaning that God designated marriage for this purpose too. Okay? So when we look at this, sexual immorality, that word is uh, originally in the Greek is porneia, porneia. And it's kind of spelled like you would imagine it, and that's where we get that word porn and everything else from. 
And, and, and that word signifies any sexual relationship out of marriage between a husband and a wife. So any type of sexual conduct or anything else in that is porneia. When Paul is saying this, he is saying that we should remain pure. And in other verses, he talks about keeping the, the marriage bed pure. And he's talking about this. And now Jesus also said that we're to leave and to cleave, that a man will grow up and, and leave his household and marry his wife. And sometimes in, in our culture, we're told to test the waters first, to make sure that you're compatible. And, and the interesting thing about this is it sounds logical to us, but when we look at the statistics, the people that cohabitate before they're married have a higher divorce rate than those that don't. And this is interesting. Like, how does that happen? Well, I think part of it is because there isn't commitment. There's a, a misfire in the commitment level. And there's a difference between being with each other and being committed. And I believe that God created uh, sex and passion and all that stuff for his purpose, for our enjoyment, but within the proper context. So that's, that's, that's what Scripture says. Um, any immorality beyond that is not designated by Scripture. 1 Corinthians 16, I mean, sorry, 6.13 says, You say food was made for the stomach. Amen? How many of you are glad that? And the stomach was made for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares, cares about our bodies. Now, now, here's my distinctive in this. He's speaking to Christians here, okay? He's not speaking to the rest of the world. And we talked about this earlier. We can't get people to obey Scripture if they don't follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Amen? So first, we have to make Jesus Savior and Lord. And then we begin to define what does God want for us? What does God want for us? What is his best and highest purpose for us? And he's trying to keep us from pain. He's trying to keep us from suffering. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 says, Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. So that's a sin against yourself. It's, it's a defeating sin. And, and, and there's countless studies out there that talk about men and women in college and beyond who, who are promiscuous. And the more promiscuous they are, the more difficulty they have with, with mental issues and with depression and all these other things. Because what they're doing is they're taking something that God made sacred for one other person so that you're bound together. And they're sharing it with everyone. And so they're some ways bound to other people. And they, don't, they can't keep that cohesive. Does that make sense? They can't keep that the way that God wants to. Now, this is very countercultural to our world today. And I believe this is how us as believers in Christ are to live. The Bible promotes complete abstinence before marriage. Complete abstinence. And, and I know that, that that isn't always perfect, and there are people that are born out of wedlock, and they're just as important, and I, you know, there's words that people used to use about that, and I don't agree with that at all. I think that God designated everyone who's born, amen, to be born, and that they are a, they are a child that he created. So there's none of that. And I can't look at other couples and say that they live together before they're married or they were promiscuous before they're married they, and they come to Christ. There is no judgment from me. There's no judgment from the church as far as that's concerned. We are called to love. 
In fact, I invite people to the church all the time that are in these categories because I know the only way that they can be made well, whole, and better is if they get married, like Paul said, but also, more importantly, if they know Jesus first as their Lord and Savior. See, sometimes we have the context that we have to be perfect before we come to Jesus, but that ain't right, guys. We come to Jesus. He is perfect, and he perfects us and moves us along the path. So, if you think about this just from a, a purely uh, practical standpoint, we would have far less abortions. We would have far less STDs. We would have far less broken marriages and, and broken households if we followed the Scripture's way of doing things. And realize that Adam and Eve were created for each other. And it was interesting because this is the first marriage, right? Adam didn't get a choice and Eve didn't get a choice, so it worked out. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I think that he has bound us together, and it's for as long as both shall live or one shall live. He has bound us together in that, and it is an image of what Jesus' relationship is for the church. So marriage completes that, but also completes procreation because God designed us to continue to have families and to have children and to have babies. And there are other things that happen outside of that. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that a lot of people messed up in this area. A lot of people did things they weren't supposed to. King David did, and he was forgiven and made whole and made righteous in the eyes of God. So this is by no means the sin that you can't come back from. It's something that you can continue to move forward with, and you can accept forgiveness for everything. Amen? And it's not by our righteousness that we're made whole, but by Jesus Christ alone. So we, we don't get caught up on that. We don't get into people's past. We don't dig dirt, and we don't judge because it says in Scripture it's God's thing to do it. But we do proclaim the word of God and the truth of God without fear and with boldness. Okay. But, Pastor Ben, you say that God's truth and it's in the Bible and you read some verses. That's all well and good. But isn't truth relative? So if we go back through all of the questions that we answered throughout this series, um, this is deeply important that we grasp this idea. Okay, because if truth is relative, then that is my truth, right? And you guys all have your individual truths. You all have your individual things that you live by. And, and truth is just kind of what you make of it and what you want. And that's a very postmodern mindset that, that there is not any real truth. But if there is a God, wouldn't it make sense that there is at least one absolute source of morality? Wouldn't it make sense that there is at least one absolute right idea? And that's God's idea, right? If you believe that, th then it's there. But there's a lot of people who believe that truth is relative that don't believe in a God. They don't believe in a creator. They don't believe in any of that. And, and if you talk to them, they'll say, well, you know, truth isn't absolute and, and all truth is relative. And, th and then you can ask them this question, how do you know that's true? <laughs> Think about it. If all truth is relative and it's your truth, then they're, what they're saying can't be true. So what they're saying is nothing is true except for what I make of it. And I'm saying that this is the only one true thing. It doesn't work logically. You, you guys follow? I feel like I'm doing a bad job of explaining it. So if, if, if it's a self-contradiction, it's an oxymoron, it's something that doesn't fit together. It doesn't fit together. If I say 
Uh, all truth is whatever you make of it, that can't be true. If I climbed up to the top of this building and it's not really high and I decided to do a swan dive down, I say, I believe in my heart I'm going to fly, what's going to happen? Someone's going to be calling 911. <laughs> and, and I'm going to look a little bit uglier. Okay? So that's going to happen. But, but we live our life with absolutes all the time, and we don't realize this. Think about this. If I told you that there are no absolutes, there are no absolutes, and then I, I, I asked a question, or someone asked me the question, hey, do you think that torturing babies is wrong? What do you think 9 out of 10 would people would say? What do you think 10 out of 10 people would say? Yeah, it's bad to hurt babies, right? It's bad to do this. It's wrong to do this. Well, well then where did that moral law come from? Where did that idea in our head that this is wrong and this is right come from? Well, the people say society built it and everything else. I claim that God has written the moral law upon our hearts and he has given us some absolutes that we know to be true. We know to be true. So there are absolutes and there are reality. And, and, and I think that you should seek truth. It says you should seek it and you should find it. And I believe that truth isn't so much a thing or an idea. It is a person. And it's Jesus Christ. And it's the Trinity when you look at all of those. It's real. It's there. It's present. So John 18, six, uh, 36 through 39. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world, Pilate said. So you are a king? And Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And Pilate's response says, what is truth? There are a lot of people out there that are asking that question, what is truth? What is truth? Uh, my argument is that Jesus is truth, amen? That Jesus is who he claims to be, and he is what he says he is. Charles Lindbergh uh, was an explorer, a flyer, a scientist, and, and this is what he wrote. He said, in my youth, science was more important to me than either man or God. I worship science. Its advance had surpassed man's wildest dreams. It took my heart it took me many years for me to discover that science, with all its brilliance, lights only a middle chapter of creation. I saw the aircraft that I love destroying the civilization, civilization I expected it to save. So he's talking about bombing and everything else. Now I understand that spiritual truth is more essential to a nation than the mortar in its city walls. For when the actions of a people are undergirded by spiritual truths, there is safety. When spiritual truths are rejected, it is only a matter of time before civilization will collapse. We must understand spiritual truths and apply them to our modern life. We must draw strength from the almost forgotten virtues of simplicity, humility, contemplation, and prayer. It requires a dedication beyond science, beyond self, but the rewards are great, and it is our only hope. That was written a long time ago, but it's still applicable today. If you look at our world and what's happened with it, if you look at our nation and even what's happened with our nation, you see there's been an elevation of science and truth. And that elevation of science and truth actually came out of the schools that churches created. 
So Harvard, Yale, all of these other different fellowships and different colleges were created by Christians and churches. They were staffed by Christians and churches. But the pursuit of science became the end goal. And as they grew in their wisdom and understanding of this, they rejected the idea of a creator and a God. And as they're doing, they're, they're creating their own truth and their own relativism. And they decide that truth is what you make of it, and it isn't what it is, and science is all that there is. But when you have science by itself, without any morality, you can do whatever you want to whoever you want for whatever purpose you want. And we have a society in a world that is without moral grounding in Jesus Christ, without a law that God created. And it means that whatever works for you works, and that hurts many other people. Does that make sense? Like, the way we live our lives does not just impact us. The way our politicians live their lives does not just impact them. It changes everything around them. And if you have no moral compass and you have no boundaries to how you live and to what you do and what you think is acceptable, then you will do things to people that are horrendous. We have no need to look very far into our past to see things that happened in our own history as a nation that I think were horrendous, but also in Germany and Russia and communism and Nazism and all these things are without moral compass. And the first thing they did was got rid of God, got rid of the Bible and said science is above all things and it is the new God. And when they did that, they tossed out all moral law, all moral codes, and they thought, basically, that torturing babies is okay. Killing the innocent, killing the elderly, killing those with mental disabilities, that is okay because it's for the greater good. I want you to know there is no greater good than the person you're next to right now or your neighbor or whoever you can reach out to. People are the greater good, amen? And, and we only serve God when we love others in obedience to him and when we respect and value life and there are a lot of people that disagree with me but i'm called to love them amen and there are a lot of people that disagree with you but you're called to love them and you're called to a higher standard than they're at because you know god as your savior and lord and here here's where i want to end all truth is god's truth because god created it we're just discovering it okay all truth is God's truth. So even out, truth that's outside of this Bible is still God's truth, and he designed it and created it. And we can live in that. One of my professors said that, and, and at first I sat there, and I, I can't wrap my mind around that. And I still can't completely wrap my mind around that. But I know that anything that is true, God designed, God created, and it exists for his pleasure and his purpose, just like we do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and, and even the strong scriptures and the tough, tough stuff we, we read about today. And, and, and first off, Lord, I, I want to I repent of any sin that's in my heart and in my life right now. Just like Paul said, I go back doing things I don't want to do. I, I say things to people and treat people the way I don't want to treat, treat them and the way I don't want to be treated. God, forgive me. And, and Lord, forgive us. For, for doing that, and, and even for the times that we don't even realize what we're doing, we're just, we don't even see how we could be hurting or harming other people, or how we're hurting or harming ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would erase all that sin that's, that's there, all, anything that we've ever done wrong, anything that we've ever done that hurts somebody else or hurts you, God, erase that through the power of Jesus Christ and through his, his resurrection and suffering on the cross, and, and his blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness and gives us that grace. Lord, we know that once we receive that grace, 
we're to naturally give it to others too. So, so Lord, as we go out into the world, and as we talk with people that disagree with us and, and don't view the world the same way, help us to have your grace because we know that your love changes people. That we can, we can love people into the kingdom of heaven and they can see something different in us. Lord, I, I pray that, that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees and we wouldn't think that we're better than we are. Or we wouldn't look at anybody else who we think are living in sin or doing the wrong thing and, and judge them or throw stones at them. Instead, we would say, hey, I know a Savior that loves you even more than I do. I know a Jesus who loves you so much he died for you. Lord, give us that heart. Give us your heart. Give us your spirit in such strength and boldness that we would be able to do what you've asked us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope that this message will help guide you toward positive, Christ-centered change. By reviewing this podcast, you could be part of spreading the good news. Please also consider giving a donation to our ministry at cometoabc.com slash giving. As always, these messages are available to copy and share on social networks. Until next time, continue to grow in Jesus.